Thanks, video game industry. Unrestable fatigue, really, when it comes to Wizards it. and Warriors bullshit fest that's boring as hell. You know, it's the, it's the music, man. It's just the glistening, fucking sweaty, curly locks. Like an everyday bag of chips. Hobbit torture, basically. Do we want to do a Brimley mention or not really? Oh my God, yes. He was a good man. Stood for mustaches and oatmeal. And he had a magnificent Prince Albert. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we should leave that out. It's it's, it's kind of unfortunate because, you know, one of the things I was going to say was something about the War of the Cock Rings where they're going to Mordor to find Wilford Brimley's Prince Albert or whatever. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, if that was the sort of the thing of the quest, that would have been really funny, man. Can you? I'm like, I'm picturing Brimley with no pants and a cock down to his knees, and but with boots on, and then like armor or something up top. But then just the mustache. <laughs> but the, totally shirt cocking. Yeah, and then the just the mustache with the glasses, no helmet of any kind. Like one <laughs> ring to rule them all. One ring to rule them all in oatmeal. And so he's just standing there, armor cocking slowly eating a bowl of oatmeal with his flaccid penis and like a sweet Prince Albert just sitting there. <laughs> it's full. I should have, I wish I had practiced mine more, but I just saw the news item this morning when I woke up. That's good Quaker oatmeal. No, no, you can't do anything. He's out there now. Gang violence, guns, drugs. Good thing he had a hot bowl of Quaker oatmeal before he left the house this morning though. <laughs> <laughs> For his second breakfast. All right, enough about Wolford Brimley's flaccid, pierced cock. Let's start the show. Broadcasting live from inside the power band, located in a bunker deep in the country of Valverde, this is The Blah. In this episode, everybody dies. Before we get into what we're going to be doing this week, we lost somebody very special, very near and dear to our hearts. Celebrated actor and man of mustaches and oatmeal, Wilford Brimley, passed away very recently at the ripe age of 85. And we wanted to give a shout out to him. He was an incredible man with an incredible mustache. (laughs) This is so not right. With an incredible amount of diabetes. And an incredible amount of diabetes. (laughs) (laughs) So so not cool. You will be missed, sir. Oh, my God. He was he was to oatmeal what Popeye was to spinach. <laughs> he was very much to oatmeal what Popeye was to spinach. And uh, we loved him from his performances in The Thing, in Cocoon, The Firm, to his oatmeal commercials, which I personally have watched 100 of because I love them. And I loved him, and I loved the way he dialed it in. So, Wilford Brimley, thanks for all the memories. And alongside Sam Elliott... Mr. Brimley enters the EBD Mustache Hall of Fame. Absolutely, man. Guy's mustache was absolutely just occupying its own zip code. Gave him a walrus-like countenance that was unmistakable. (laughs) Yes. And and endearing. You'll be missed, sir. Lord of the cock ranks. (laughs) And speaking of... Speaking of cock rings. (laughs) Speaking of cock rings, that's right, folks. This week on the podcast, we're going to be talking about Lord of the Rings, also known as Loter. Loter. And we decided to do something a little bit different this week. We're going to be talking about Loter, 
cold, meaning we didn't watch any of the films. Of course, I've seen these films a zillion times. So is Chad. Ben has a different opinion. And we're going to hear all about that on today's exciting episode. So stay tuned after these words from our sponsor. Stand by. Goodbye, Mom. Goodbye, Grandpa. Wish me luck on my test. Good luck. <laughs> She's nervous. Oh, I wish I could take that test for her. You did all you could. She's out that door. She's on her own. Well, she had a good night's sleep. And a hot Quaker oatmeal at breakfast. That'll stick to her ribs and warm her up. And no cold cereal could do all that. You feel better? Yeah. Thanks, Dad. Quaker oatmeal, ready to serve. It's the right thing to do. And we're back with the mom. Oh, I just worry about her so much. Oh, no, there's nothing you can do now. She's out there. Guns, drugs, gang violence, prostitution. She's likely to be taken into a sex ring here in the next... 30 minutes or so. The good thing is she had a nice hot bowl of Quaker oatmeal before she left the house this morning. I kind of want to do you opening a fridge door and being like, ah, purple stuff. Oh, Quaker oatmeal. <laughs> oh, that would be <laughs> sick. Hey, Grandpa, what do we have to drink? <laughs> well, let's see here. We got milk. We got purple stuff, soda, yeah, Quaker oatmeal. <laughs> You know, you kids, you think Quaker oatmeal is just a breakfast, but it's also a healthy drink, too. It'll cool you off on a hot day <laughs> and give you diabetes. <laughs> I'm still, I'm not, I'm not there. I had it, like, dialed in for, like, five minutes on that one episode, and I, I just don't, I'm not right. I'm not well, be careful. Yet. You'll you'll do the Buffalo Bill again, which was amazing. It's Well, that's the thing I want to avoid. <clears throat> Put the oatmeal in the fucking bowl! <laughs> <laughs> You know, you go to the you go to the supermarket and have you find they have actually have oat milk. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way to skip the step of actually putting the oatmeal in the water when you want to soften the skin. You just dump the oat milk directly <laughs> on the corpse. Just rub, massage it in. <laughs> oh man, we should do. What about a mashup where it's like Brimley? Either Brimley is Buffalo Bill or. Door to door. It's, a, it's another. It's another thing that Steven Seagal was confused about. You know, <laughs> yes. like uh, Booberry and Lambert. It's the uh, <laughs> the, the Brimley <laughs> Buffalo crossover no, confusion. Like, ooh, that would be a cool addition to like like as another character that would come yeah, in on like that a, show, Ben. Another another character from the neighborhood. <laughs> exactly. It's the wacky next door neighbor, Buffalo Brimley. <laughs> <laughs> So this was one of our sort of experimental wildcard episodes. I believe this was Chad's suggestion to go in cold on these movies and just sort of bang around and see what we thought. Where do you want to start, guys? I think the thing that was most interesting to me about this one before we uh, officially put it on the schedule was it's widely considered to be like a milestone in cinema, whether people like it or not. Like, I mean, I was reading about it today, and it's considered like one of the best movies and best trilogies of all time and won all these awards, and it's just kind of bananas looking at it now after 20 years. And uh, so less about the plot of the, you know, every five minutes of the movie or whatever, and more about just the overall thing and how, you know, Peter Jackson paved the way for kind of a different style of modern filmmaking, kind of like Lucas did with Star Wars back in the day. I'm dead. Um, yep, you are. 
And just kind of like his style and stuff and the fact that I really like these when they came out, but now I'm I'm pretty firmly not a not a fan of them and stuff. So it's just kind of an interesting case study in in a trilogy. And it kind of gave birth to modern mega franchises, which you've talked about at length being frustrated about nowadays, Kev. So I thought it there was a lot of interesting stuff kind of orbiting this particular production. Agreed. Excuse me. You want to start with high level or low level? What's your high level on this one, Kev? My high level is, as we talked in various episodes about books being adapted, where I've strongly voiced that a book should really inhabit the space of a television show, be it a single season, miniseries, maxi series, whatever, to really tell the story properly. When books go into movies, they, they don't fare well, and somebody ends up pissed. And I really like the way that they stuck to the story in this one. And the biggest omission that I can remember is the Tom Bombadil part of the Fellowship of the Ring. And I was pretty blown away that that was the only major omission and that he stuck really closely to the books themselves. And I really appreciated that. I think he did it justice for sure. And the amount of energy and detail that was put into visually how everything looked, I thought was fantastic, you know, and while we will definitely be making fun of a lot of things about these movies, I feel like the casting was pretty damn solid. And I'm going to leave it at that. Just chiming in briefly, the scouring of the Shire, which is a pretty major component in the books is also not in the films, which was a pretty huge bone of contention. But Mm. it's not really worth digging into too far. Just to note that it was a, it was one of that and Bombadil were kind of the two major major departures. There were some medium pace departures and some minor departures, but yeah, a lot seemingly just to to uh, maintain pacing. Yeah, in in movie form or even just creative differences. So fair enough. Yeah, I just think that to to be able to I forgot about that other part, but just to to be able to omit just two parts like that is it's pretty impressive, man. Especially for the time it was made, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, this is on the cusp of a different era of filmmaking. I mean, certainly CGI had definitely come into its own around the time of these films. But yeah, this was, this was a pretty big deal, man. But you could you could argue that uh, you know the Star Wars trilogy was one of the key elements in giving birth to the modern blockbuster of the '80s, and this. This was kind of key in creating the modern franchise, like the modern multi-movie, multi, you know, like there's six Lord of the Rings movies in terms of the Hobbit trilogy and the and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So, you know, it's like a proto-Marvel kind of thing, you know. Ben, what's your high level, if any? I was thinking about it uh, yesterday, and, you know, I think I've, it's no secret that I'm not huge on fantasy, and I think the reason for that is... You know, I mean, like in the 80s, there were a fucking ton of fantasy movies and they were schlocky, but they were, you know, they were pretty amazing. You know, the Conan movies, the Beastmaster, uh, you know, there are a ton of them, um, heavy metal, you know, and that's cool. And I was into it at that point. But then I think at some point, the video game industry is what really fucking killed me for for uh, fantasy. I totally agree, actually. Um, it just, you know, I mean, Tolkien is amazing, but when you have, uh, a hundred, 200, a thousand, I don't even fucking know other franchises and, and stories out there that are centralized around 
the same, you know, the same races, the elves, the halflings, the humans, the orcs, the, you know, like how many different things, how many different configurations can you have that all revolve around the same thing? And for me, it's just, there is uh, a lot of fatigue. And by the time these movies came around, I had already kind of had the lion's share of that. So I think that shapes my perception of the of the films um i had only i kind of had to i had to i'll just say it i had to cheat and watch them because i had only seen each of them i think maybe maybe twice at the most but probably only once it sounded like probably not in the last five to ten years as well not in a long time yeah (laughs) (laughs) i distinctly felt relief at the end of you know return of the king (laughs) so yeah well, Return of the King's kind of, it's the heaviest on the cheese, for sure. You know, there's a lot of cheese whiz on that one. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, If if I may. Oh, by all means. Um, oh, you may. Your comment about the video game industry, like, I, I don't think I ever, like, consciously thought about it like that, but you're exactly right. And I, I feel the same way, actually. Like, I love... The original story. I mean, who doesn't? Obviously, when you have so many copycats off the same thing, people obviously love the original material. And I do. And I was excited to see these films. Less so the Hobbit situation, but we'll get to that later. And these films were great, as I said in the beginning already. But I really agree with you. The video game totally ruined it. And not not only that, I don't remember if you mentioned this or not, but it's like now you're actually taking away from the original material because there's just it's too much there's so many i mean just thinking about mmos for a second ben cuz when we got into playing city of heroes back in 2006 whatever like i remember seeing you know i would kind of see what other mmos were out there i had no interest in playing any of them because i just wasn't into sword and sandal fantasy type stuff but you know it was like Guild Wars, Evercrack, like almost every single thing. Wow. All of that stuff was some sort of fantasy Tolkien-esque based property. And what's amazing to me is how many of them could actually simultaneously coexist. I mean, they're all basically the same thing uh, without imploding, man. You know what I mean? And it's kind of a shame that there were so many. And I think that's what it something like that starts to do for me is it starts to diminish the source material or make me not want to watch it or read it or see it or whatever. I think in the case of Tolkien, it's so strong. It's like, you know, nothing will, it, it it can't really diminish it. I would go back and read the books again in a heartbeat, but yeah, it's annoying. Thanks video game industry. I don't know how many different games you can have that all revolve around the same sort of scenarios you know it, it, dark elves Ooh. <laughs> people play them so you know i'm clearly the the one that's wrong here but it's it's definitely what informs my opinion of fantasy these days and i i have i don't know perhaps an un, unrestable fatigue really when it comes to it yeah that's fair 
I'm not a huge f- fantasy fan in general anyways. Like, the Lord of the Rings and the Wizard of Earthsea, Ursula Le Guin stuff is kind of the only fantasy I've ever connected with. So, like, I, I, I'm I, with you in the sense of, like, the genre as a whole I've never really delved too deep into. And I just similarly would rather explore a new sci-fi world and universe than another iteration of the elf bullshit. I complete. That's exactly how I feel, Chad. But I suppose I have reverence for the original Lord of the Rings being one of the forefathers of the whole thing. And I I came across it, I think, at 17 or 18, the Lord of the Rings books. So it was pre all of the gaming stuff. And it connected with me. I was traveling at the time and just like smashed them out. And I loved them. So I've read them, you know, a few times. I was like, what the hell are all these Led Zeppelin songs about? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, like, the fatigue thing was never really a thing for me because I just missed all the gaming stuff. I kind of stopped hardcore gaming as MMOs were kind of becoming a thing, which I'm thankful for in a way because I probably would have lost a lot of uh, a lot of time into, you know, them. But um, when these movies were coming out, I was super excited. And kind of all the way up until the third movie, I was just, like, you know nerding out hard and super happy about it and like really excited about them and couldn't get enough of it culminating in me going to like a really weird rare screening where you could watch the two extended movies that at midnight that night the third movie was being shown so like sat there for 12 hours with a bunch of people dressed up like fucking elves and dwarves that stinky geek outfits drinking mountain dew and what kind of freaking bed sores did you have from sitting in that chair for so long Dude, it was. It sounded like a good idea when I got the tickets, and then afterwards, I was like, "That was not a good idea." <laughs> and it like it was. It's kind of the moment where like my where I began to not enjoy the series because I feel like the third movie is the weakest of the three, and watching eight hours of the first two extendeds in a room full of people leading up to one that's going to be kind of disappointing at midnight. Like I was just like, it kind of deflated the balloon, you know. I was just kind of fart noises and mm. walked out of it dazed with bed sores and uh you know foam gimli acts up my butt and didn't really enjoy it that much after that <laughs> but in terms of like if i can briefly high level it a couple of thoughts that i had today were i love the universe of middle earth and how fleshed out it mm. is and mm-hmm. I especially enjoy how the Lord of the Rings story is like the final kind of chapter or one of the last chapters in this like epic 50 volume kind of history of this universe. And I just find that fresh. Like it's it's certainly at the time it was being written, it was a fresh idea. But just to have kind of like the end of Middle Earth and the like fading of the elves and it just gave it so much you know, history and lore and gravity that I really connected with it. And so to see it on the big screen was really exciting. But now that I, you know, the adrenaline has worn off and I can see it for what it is, I uh, I kind of wish I hadn't seen them. Wow. Yeah, wow. That's saying a lot. Yeah, sure is. And I think the reason I wish I hadn't seen him is what I've mentioned multiple times in other shows is like once you see something, it has a chance of destroying your imagined world that you that you created in your imagination when reading it. So that's the main gripe. I do generally agree with what you said, Kev, of like he did a decent job. I wouldn't say he did a great job, but he did a damn decent job. It's just the fact that it destroyed my imagination. of More it, than decent, like, man, but I agree with you totally. You know, reading it now, like I just picture the movies and it's a shame. I wish I wish I could have, you know, I wish I could capture what I originally imagined, you know. 
if if I can remember what I originally imagined, I can get back to that place. But where this property is concerned, I don't remember what I originally imagined. So now it's basically just reading the movie. Yeah, exactly. It's been years since I've read it. I need to read it again at some point, but I have read it since the movies, and I did find it was like reading the movies. So I will say also that I was a huge fan of the original Rankin-Bass Hobbit animated and Bakshi's Lord of the Rings Two Towers and Rankin-Bass Return of the King, so I have a lot of that as my visuals in my yeah. head already. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, I watched those before I read the books. Okay. Yeah. I think I think uh, the animated films and just in general, like fantasy art was massive mm. in the 80s. You know, all the uh, all the D&D like lore books and, you know, just the like endless amount of po- like, you know, I had like a poster, you know, like a like a uh, who was the uh, is Boris Valero? No. Well, yeah, Boris Valero and Frank Frazetta. Those are two big ones. Frank Frazetta, yeah, yeah. So just all of that imagery really informed what I was seeing, and to a degree that's still there when I think of it. Even watching the movies, like some of some of what I see there, I think in uh, Peter Jackson's films doesn't quite live up to some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. So it colors it for sure, but I think I'm I'm sort of able to still hold on to like what my original visions were. Yeah. I'm curious because you know they're going to reboot all this shit at some point, and I'm curious in 20 years what they'll do, but I'm happy to wait 20 years before there's another one. I was just going to say, Chad, I think uh, I would be very interested to see somebody do another animated interpretation sure. of this, yeah, totally. this property. From The Hobbit all the way through yep. – to the end of Return of the King. And I mean, like, really take their time and, like, dial in every single aspect. Even if it is a, you know, digital animation versus a drawn animation, either way, like, I would be very curious for there to be a new renaissance of animated stuff. Even if it's a digital animation, like a Pixar movie, I'd be fine with it, but I would be very interested in a animated renaissance. Like, I think that sci-fi and fantasy could use more animated attention you know agree agree and i also would say think hard for one second about a pixar disney version of lord of the rings and i think you may feel differently about it oh i don't necessarily want a pixar disney version but like i'd be okay for it to be digitally animated versus hand-drawn is what i'm saying okay digitally yeah sure but i think i really would hanker for a digital like a hand-drawn sure Sure. Or or a hand draw, like assist, kind of like the way they did Archer, you know, with yeah. like some stuff was computer, some stuff wasn't, yeah. you know, but really like a Rick and Morty type of situation. Not that style, obviously, but. I'll blow the name, although, but like Gendy Tartakovsky or whatever, the guy that did Samurai Jack, mm-hmm. like I'd love to see something okay. like that. There you go. Be pretty interesting if uh, they did it in the style of Rick and Morty, though. <laughs> that would be pretty good, yeah. Backing out of the animated thing, Amazon is working on a Lord of the Rings series. Yeah, I don't know much about that. I'm excited about it just because it's been, you know, 20 years since Lord of the Rings has been touched and The Hobbit's kind of its own thing. But I'd be curious to see what they do with it. Yeah, I have no idea what uh, what it's supposed to, you know, when when it's supposed to take place or 
you know, who was supposed to be in it. If I remember correctly, I think it's, I, I could be totally just making this shit up, but I think it's a first age thing where the Lord of the Rings takes place in the third age of middle earth. And the first age is like fucking angels and shit. Like the, the creation of the world kind of stuff, the Silmarillion mythological stuff. So I, I think it's really early on. So kind of like the Knights of the Old Republic Star Wars stuff. It's like way, way, way before the regular stuff. So it could be an interesting place to fuck around. It could just be another, you know, Wizards and Warriors bullshit fest that's boring as hell, you know? Well, it could be. I just looked it up. Um, it is set in the Second Age. Second before Age. Before okay, the cool. events of Lord of the Rings novel and films. Budget is $250 million, so you know they're uh, putting something into it. Yeah, that's wild. There is not a single person in this that I recognize. And it's Amazon, right? Yeah. Yep. You know we'll be watching it. Yeah, I'm sure it'll happen. And you know we'll be bitching about it on this show, folks. So <laughs> get excited for that. I, I kind of am now, I think, in alignment with what you're saying, Benny, in terms of like fantasy fatigue or maybe specifically like the fantasy tropes fatigue. Like, it wouldn't surprise me at all to watch the show and just be like, don't care. Come back to me when my kid's 15. I would even say that the Tolkien tropes really are, are where it's at for me as far as the fatigue goes. Because even like something like The Witcher, it's based more on, you know, uh, like Polish folklore. And, yeah. Yep. You know, it's 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 just different enough. You know, <laughs> well, I was going to say very different, Ben. Yeah. You know, different different enough that I want to play the game and read the books. And I haven't felt felt that way about a fantasy situation really ever. Yeah, it's just got enough of a of a twang on it to make it fresh. I think, um, and I'm fine with that, you know. And or you know, any anything like, you know, you, you mentioned sword and sandals, sort of, which I don't necessarily think of as like interchangeable with fantasy. I think I know you're right. I, I like, said that. More as like, but but just as an example of something sort of like branching off from fantasy, the Greek mythology kind of thing. Like, I love stuff like that too, and you know, it's just really the 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 Tolkien clones that fucking drive me bonkers, <laughs> and kind of ruin the actual source material for me. You know? Yeah, totally. And and the number of like book series series of books that have come out that are you know Tolkien esque in their makeup, at least in the fact that they have. You know, humans, elves, gnome, you know, all of those, the, the basic races, character types, what have you, you know? Yeah. So, pray tell, gentlemen, where should we go next? The only other high-level thought I've got is before recording in the last couple of days, I was trying to think about kind of why the film hasn't settled well and doesn't really hold up, in my view, as a piece of art. Like, the effects hold up, the acting holds up, his adaptation holds up like it's all fine like it's good enough or it's decent whatever but the timing of this is really interesting from a technological perspective as well as like the world changed so i i I kind of think that the movie doesn't sit well because the entire world completely changed as it was being released with september 11th and like the wars that we went into afterwards and like everyone's much more cynical and everything kind of just fell apart Mm. and so kind of the saccharine oversaturated fucking heidily diddly let's all prance around you know you can dance if you want to music video fucking movie <laughs> safety dance just kind of d- 
just doesn't hold up because like we live in a different fucking world now. And I feel like that's part of why I just don't really enjoy it as much anymore. And I'm curious if that resonates at all. Well, when you started talking, you were saying that they don't hold up. And then the last thing you said just there was you don't enjoy them as much. So I need clarification, which I suppose what I'm saying is I don't think they're overly relevant anymore. And they're kind of quaint now. Hmm. Uh, because the world changed. And that's not Peter Jackson's fault. Like, no one can see the future. But from a, like, Riddick timing perspective, they obviously caught the wave, made billions of dollars, and made the money. But in terms of how the art holds up, you know, like Blade Runner holds up 30 years later or 50 years later, whatever, but 40 years later. But I don't think that this holds up because of how quaint it is when being viewed from the perspective that we have now. And I'm just kind of... I'm not sure if I feel super strongly about that, but it was just something that came to mind as a possibility. I think that the films hold up well. I agree with what you're saying. And as you were saying that, I was thinking that I think that there's two reasons, actually, that a film can not hold up over time. One of them is from, you know, it's sort of technical aspects of acting and cinematography and all of that sort of thing. And then I think the other one is actually what you just said. I think that the, that the perspective of the world and what's happening in the now can change drastically enough that something cannot hold up. Yeah. You follow, you follow what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, I do. I think that you're right. I, I think the films hold up, but you're right. There is a quaintness to them. And I think it's because of the world that we're living in now, not because of, like you said, anything Jackson did or any of the acting or any of that stuff. I do think that there's a little, you know, there are parts of these movies that are kind of cheesy and annoying. And so I think those parts kind of I don't know, annoy me more. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't feel that way. I mean, they're they're still true to the book. Yeah, true enough. Know, it's the it's the music, man. It's just that <laughs> Sorry, it is. It's just that <laughs> How does that stupid Hobbit song go? Like that that and you know, I don't know. Like that's part of it, man. I think I think also just to kind of to I, I don't know, I was trying to comment on your your statement, Chad, but I'm going to jump off of it a little bit yeah, as a segue. Fine. Like the music in this movie, it, I, I don't know. It's good, but it got very tiresome very quickly. So I think that joking aside, yes, the music is, is, gives it quaintness, quaintness and fatigue to me. Yeah. We talk about the score of music a lot on the show for all, uh, all these movies. So it's interesting that. For whatever reason, this one kind of rubs you and I the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, it really does. It's interesting. It creates fatigue for sure. It, it created a lot of fatigue for me on this last, you know, slog through Mordor, Middle Earth to Mordor. Yeah, I think for me, and this resonated with me the first time, is that I think it starts off the the series starts off strong. I think it's it's excellently cast. You know, it's really well done, but just the story, it's like, it turns into, it devolves into like Hobbit torture, basically, <laughs> you know, like it, it is so, it is such a slog and so fatiguing by the time you get to Return of the King with just the whole, you know, Sam and, and, and Gollum and, and Frodo arc. And they're just, you know, it's just, they're always like, 
they're bickering or they're crying or they're, you know, they're just struggling and, you know, or starving or, you know, it's just mm. the way they portrayed that thing, I think just was like, maybe they, like, if they just turned it down, like, you know, a couple of notches, if they ramped down the drama, just a smidge you know i think it would have made it an easier watch but the way it stands it just it just always rubbed me the wrong way you know what ben i feel like drama would have been fine but i think what was created between the actors performances and the music and not as much the way everything was shot but that too is it was over drama like I'm, I'm listening to you thinking about it and I'm like, you're right. Like the Hobbit fatigue, like I get it. And it's like, it's just, it's kind of over drama. You know what I mean? Like designed to be over drama, designed to elicit some kind of feeling from you. Now that may sound like an over obvious statement when talking about films as an art form, but. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. I already felt, I already felt empathy for them and, the, you know, I already felt empathy for Frodo in a situation, you know, where it's like he's carrying the ring. It's like it's sort of like holding the world's biggest dump until you get to a certain destination where you can finally <laughs> like take a crap, you know? And uh, yeah, that's a lot of, yeah, it's a lot of anxiety along the way. Yeah. You know, and you, you, I, I feel for him, but I feel like, yeah, they, it was over dramatized. It was just, there was too much. You didn't need to beat me over the head with it. I got it. You know, that's it. Yes. I think I agree. I don't know if I agree generally, but I kind of do. I, I feel like what they were trying to capture was a concentration camp survivory style of horrible experience. But I kind of like I kind of do agree with the frustration that you guys have voiced because they don't really succeed in that. Like they're going for a Schindler's Listy or like end of the pianist kind of piano solo, holy shit emotional moment. But all it is is like, you know, three dudes dragging their asses up the side of a hill with like glistening fucking sweaty curly locks and fucking hairy feet. And it just doesn't really work all that well, you know? <laughs> and too much slow-mo. Hmm. Yeah. Like, it would be important to communicate the horror of what they're going through, but the style of the entire trilogy doesn't really lend itself to communicating that horror without it seeming like soap opera-y, especially when you say, like, the music is mixed in and stuff. Yeah, I agree. Right, right. Well, it's kind of a depart. like, you know, like, there's, I mean, I know this is how the story goes, so you can't change that, but, you know, you, you are... There's all this like high adventure and, you know, action and intrigue that just devolves into this like, you know, like you said, like like Schindler's List, like level, you know, <laughs> unhappy uh, suffering suffer. Yeah. Like that's just it to, to sort of like that's like your end note, you know, that's where it that's where it goes. <laughs> yeah. It's just yeah. it's a bit much. I think it was a it was a super slog this last time trying to get through it, you know. Like I, I had to like just kind of like fast forward through some shit. So it's just <laughs> I couldn't take it anymore. Just not interested, <laughs> which is totally fair enough. It was torture. Yeah, I I'm with you, man. I I think Chad is right about the sort of Holocaust, you know, kind of analogy with the the two the two kids, the two kids running through Mordor. 
But you're right, Ben. And then on top of that, what Ben said, like it's just always struggling, always bitching with freaking Gollum, always bitching with each other, you know. And and then it was almost like the ring around his neck didn't take enough center stage. Like, you know what I mean? I feel like that was almost lesser in terms of hmm. it becomes melodramatic when you're talking about. Well, yeah, in terms of like what's being portrayed, the through line, the plot line, when you're just talking about the Sam and Frodo story, especially in the third film, well, second and third film, like the, you're remembering more the, like the bitching and the golem and the struggling and oh my God, I stubbed my toe and wow, we just went in a circle again and we're on foot. So we're really only going a half mile a day. Like there's that, that start, that stuff is coming to the forefront more than like the real struggle with the ring, which is supposed to be the whole, what of it? No. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. Whatever, whatever they were going for, it just, it just seemed like melodrama to me. Like it just, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what I meant by over drama. I feel like it was too manufactured. Like, yes, films are designed to, you know, make you feel something. Right. But this was more in a, manufactured kind of way, but I, this is really tough to describe. Not in a scuzzy way, because I don't think that's what Peter Jackson's all about. I think he was all about no, not sticking. At all. I think it kind of happened that way, where it was like you had the music and this and these elements, and it, that's how it ended up coming off. Certainly 10 years later, 15 years later, you know? Certainly when you first see it, you're like, oh, and this and that, you know? And there, there are some heartfelt moments, but I feel like they don't hit as hard or land as well because they're too melodramatic, engineered over dramatic, or wh- whichever one of those you want to pick or throw them all in a blender. I don't really care. There's a kind of a couple things that come to mind where on the one hand, I saw that where there are sometimes two or three units filming in tandem on this series, there were five to seven units filming, filming at any given time, which is wild. Nuts. And instead of 30 minutes of footage a day in terms of dailies, there was three to four hours every day. So, like, it would be very easy to to find yourself as a creator deep in the hole where either you're not necessarily getting the best footage because Unit 6 is filming them climbing up the side of a hill or you just, you know, don't have the budget to do reshoots or whatever, you know, on the one hand. And then the other thing that comes to mind is... Tolkien is a World War One vet who lived in the trenches for a while or whatever. So a lot of this is an allegory for the horrors of World War One. And then additionally, there was this, a nugget that I wasn't going to put in the show generally because it wasn't interesting, but it fits perfectly here where Christopher Lee was being coached by um, Peter Jackson and how to act after being stabbed in the chest. And he's a World War Two vet and he says – don't tell me how someone acts when they're stabbed in the chest. I know exactly how someone acts when they're stabbed in the chest. Wow. And so you can kind of understand where, like, on the one side, you've got a constraint of seven units, and on the other side, you've got a guy who's never been to war trying to make a movie about the horrors of war. And you could totally see how his attempts would be ham-fisted and end up being melodramatic because, like, it'd be like any one of us trying to make a war movie. Like, we might be able to do it justice, but Mm. at the same time, it wouldn't surprise me to swing and miss, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Wow, yeah, that's a really good point, man. But I think that he swings and misses in a lot of ways in this series, but I still agree generally that I give him props for basically doing a decent adaptation. But it does go melodramatic. It does go cheese dick. 
they do pander to the lowest common denominator of viewership with all of the fucking, you know, comic relief tropey stuff. And they're trying to pander to the audience, you know. So, like, it has its foibles for sure. No doubt, man. But I still won't take anything away from him. And I still like these movies and I would still watch them again. Probably The Two Towers more than any of them because – that is a Carl Urban film, as we all know. <laughs> exactly. And the third film is also a Carl Urban film, but really The Two Towers is a Carl Urban film. And it should say The Two Towers starring Carl Urban and then the rest of the cast. And everybody else. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think that, um, yeah, you still can't take anything away from him. He really did like a huge thing. And he did it well enough that people were – satisfied except for like the token estate who was like you're the devil you know i'm so you know good on him man yeah i think what you just said is perfect though he did well enough absolutely didn't do a great job in my view and i don't know if anyone could maybe maybe i would add an asterisk to that saying i don't know if anyone could with you know filmmaking maybe with animation it can be done but it's a very difficult piece I agree, but I think also the reason why I'm saying, yes, I agree with everything you know Ben's saying and you're saying and, and the nitpicks that I'm throwing in there, they are just that. Like, I mean, we are really picking this thing apart now, but th- this is still a really great film property. You know what I mean? I don't know why. Well, I may change that thought <laughs> as we That's move fine. on here. But anyway, anyway. I agree. It's It's... I think as well done as anybody might be able to hope for. We can all nitpick the shit out of it, you know, but it's just one of those things where, you know, sometimes when you watch a movie or a series of movies, you can, you know, what's going to happen, but it's fine. You know, like you're getting there is, is fun. And in this case, it, the return of the King is such a fucking slog that I just, you know, I would, I would, agree with you that I would cap out at two towers like that that would be it. And then I'm done. <laughs> totally, man. It's just, it's the, it's the slot. It's the, this, the cheese and the music and the slow-mo. I just like, Oh, I couldn't handle it at the end. Like just, I yeah. can't no more slow-mo, please. I can't deal with another <laughs> slow-mo scene. Of, we got to have another hug, you know? <laughs> so bad. I mean, I'm, it's I'm, so I, it sounds so callous. Cause that's not, I'm not like a, an unfeeling caring person I am, but no, but that's just, it's, that's, that's what's wrong with it. You know, you, it shouldn't, it shouldn't evoke those feelings in you. You should, you should feel the, that's why it's dialed up too much. You know, you start, it starts making you angry because it's too syrupy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you gotta, you know, the the second one is just, I I don't know. I don't, it's not like it's all battles either, but the second one is just, it's the best one. No, and I agree. It's, it's like, you know, it's the best you got one. Fun, I think you got, you got fun golf forest. You got Mr. Tree. <laughs> <laughs> Gandalf the white with his perfectly styled at the salon hair. Like that was one thing I could never get over. Garfield, the great Garfield, the great. Sorry. Yeah. Garfield, the white or Garfield, the great Garfield, the great. <laughs> And then, or Narfel the Garthog. <laughs> Narfel the Garthog. Oh, fucking awesome. Awesome reference. Right? Thank you. Um, from a very underrated film, I might add. We, we, we got to do that someday, man. Um, yeah, we need to throw that one on the list for sure. All right. For any of you nerds out there that don't know what we're talking about, it's the Coneheads movie. Such a classic. So, yeah, the, the you know, Ammer, Riders of Rohan, like, this is just so much great 
stuff. I mean, I still to this day, if I can't see somebody see something and somebody's at a better vantage point, I go, Legolas, what do you I see? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the best part is that usually the person looks at me and they have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) I love that shit. That's like... Those are kind of some of my favorite references is when you, you drop one in a group setting and no one has a fucking clue. I almost enjoy that more. Oh, I, I do. At this point in my life, I do enjoy that more. I love dropping a reference and everybody looks at me like, I think we probably shouldn't invite him to come back to the next <laughs> And then you're like, you know what? Please don't invite me back. Thank you. Bye. I'm exactly, go talk to my friends man. on Skype. Exactly. Yeah, so anyway, I, I actually like the music. What? <laughs> no, I I think uh, on the music, I didn't get a chance to comment. I think the music for this trilogy is excellent, and I think that it is like an excellent pop album that gets played so often by your little sister that you end up smashing the fucking CD. Like, it's the kind of thing that, like, fit perfectly but got so overplayed that it makes you just viciously hate it. That's kind of my proposal. I think I think you're right because this guy I just was doing like a little bit of ejection reading about Howard Shore and Howard Shore who did the score like this is a guy who's an accomplished Hollywood composer he's done literally tens of films if not a hundred before this came out so this is the guy that did the score to The Departed Copland Mrs Doubtfire you know the list is endless so he's not incapable of doing it. I think what you just said really nails it better than anything. Like the score itself is fine, but we I think we all got beaten over the head with it. Now, the the fact that the score is able to give you an airworm and get stuck in your head that badly says that it is quality. It's just yeah, I completely agree. You fucking beat over the head with it. Like it needed more parts or something. More variety. Don't you think? Like a few more pieces, yeah, to to round things out so you didn't keep kind of going back to those same Mm -hmm. earwormy pieces over and over again. (laughs) Yeah. There was a cool YouTube video that I stumbled upon that talks about how Howard Shore took his cues from like Wagner's operatic structures. And it was very like music theory-ish and like, I don't know, it might not be some people's cup of tea, but it was interesting. It was interesting how like... It was talking about the three or four key, you know, legs of the stool and how there's subtle variations. And so those subtle variations are kind of so subtle that there's almost, it sounds like there's no variation and it gets really repetitive maybe. So, but. Hmm. You could even say that about, and I'm going to die here, uh, the score for Star Wars. Yeah. No, Chad already died, so you're not dead. It definitely has that sort of, you know, like you're describing it as like, you know, pillars of a, of a building or, you know, legs of a stool or whatever. Yeah. And variants off of that. You know, I just for some reasons that score doesn't doesn't uh, wear on me as much as Lord of the Rings score. No. And I think that that's a perfect kind of comparison because I don't remember exactly how it was said a minute ago, but I would argue pretty strongly that the rewatchability of the Star Wars original trilogy and the re-listenability of the Star Wars original trilogy's, trilogy's score kind of, to me, sh- shows clearly that it's a superior trilogy by probably a long margin. And while this trilogy is decent, I think the original Star Wars trilogy is great. 
and you know the original Star Wars trilogy is kind of like a romp in its pacing, and you can't really say the same for the Lord of the Rings story because of its mythology and stuff. And so maybe it's like not fair to compare, but I, I think there's places you can compare them, Chad. But yeah. really, like you know, the Star Wars at its core is just like you know a princess in the castle kind of fantasy. It's so basic. Like the source material. It, it didn't get created until Return of the Jedi was done. You know what I mean? Like, that was the original canon. You know, like, Peter Jackson was going in from three incredibly revered books. So, like, there, there's a lot of pressure there. That's fair. Honestly, too, like, you touched on it a little while ago, Chad. Like, he shot this in a year, basically. I mean, forgetting about, you know, pickups and all that sort of thing, like, it was shot from 99 to 2000, like basically in one year with five to seven unit directors going on. Like that's bananas. Pretty insane. Like that's quite an accomplishment. Dude, that's not even pretty insane. That's fucking insane. It is insane. You're right. And the fact that the films came out the way that they did is a testament to Jackson's organizational skills and, you know, execution, really. No doubt. I mean, you really cannot take that away from him because just trying to keep track of your, let's just say five to be generous to him on a given day, like you were saying, four hours of footage, that's so much to try to keep track of and keep your hand on and make sure that the quality is good. Dude, that's you working your 12-hour day and then having to watch four more hours daily. It's like, fuck a bag of that. Pretty much, dude. Mm -hmm. that, might be, that might be where the problems lie, though, right? I it mean, might be. It might be. Yeah. Could be a little bit of both. You know, it's like a great accomplishment and it was a little bit too much. And I, and I, I applaud that he was trying to be savvy and really make it and not be wasteful and get the thing out quick and, you know, dial it in. But well, it was the only way to do it. Yeah. Evidently, he shopped it around and everyone was like, there's no way we're taking the risk on three movies. And, you know, he went to he he pretended to go down to two movies to get it in front of New Line. And the only comment the New Line guy had at the end of the conversation was like, I like everything, but it should be three movies, which was music to his ears, you know, so. $300 million to make three movies at the same time was the absolute most money that anyone was ever going to get at that time, which is crazy considering how much money is pissed in, into the drain for you know comic book movies nowadays. But And certainly the movies that just tank like crazy, man. Yeah, but this unlocked all of that, you know, in a way. So it's, it's a, definitely a testament to his ability to build an amazing team, no doubt about it. Absolutely. Do we want to talk about the Hobbit trilogy? I wanted to talk about it a little bit, so yeah. Me too. Go for it. Fire it up. I, I didn't know we were going to do that, so. Well, not about the plot, but I've only I've only seen the first I've only seen the first one, so. Which is a perfect kind of that's perfect in a way, Benny. Okay. Yeah, I've only seen the first two, and I I really wanted to bring it up, Ben, because of what we were talking about a few minutes ago in terms of. You know, like we were both agreeing that it's like you can't take away from it. It's great. Like I would watch these movies again, blah, blah, blah. But then The Hobbit comes out and it's just totally different. Like what happens? I don't really know. But I watched the first one. I got through the second one. I had zero interest in watching the third one whatsoever. And I really didn't like that they dragged one book into three 20-hour movies and 
I mean, that's kind of what you wanted to see with the original three was enough time spent on every little part. And then for some reason, when these movies came out, I just like, I was jaded and did not want to watch them. And I don't really know what it is because I've never really taken the time to explore that discontent, but the cast was great. All the elements were there from the first films, including to a degree, the music that was beating you over the head, but it's like you had Ian McKellen and Martin Freeman. My God, I love him, man. So many great people. So it's like, what what the hell happened? Because I really just like, I'm so not into those movies. And I love the story of The Hobbit. And I love the original Rankin-Bass animated Hobbit. So, you know, I don't know. Well... I kind of wish we had done this about those instead, because, you know, I can't even remember anything about the first the first installment of those movies. Uh, and I didn't watch the second or third one. And, you know, now that I've gone and slogged through the the, the original trilogy, I have no appetite to try and slog through that one. <laughs> but um, at least it would have been something different. You know, I think. The reason that I also didn't watch all three, I watched the first two and just gave up. And I think looking back on it, the reason I gave up is because it took that, not schlockiness, but it took that over-drama, over-saturated cheese dickiness and writing to the lowest common denominator audience member, and it turned that knob up, and it was already at its limit. Mm, Interesting. So I would argue that that's the major failure point of the Hobbit trilogy. Not that it was a cash grab, not that it was three movies where it shouldn't have been three movies, but that it was three movies that were a hell of a lot longer than they should have been because of all the cheese dicky bullshit in a story that is a is a romp. You know, we were talking about Star Wars as a romp, whereas Lord of the Rings is really heady stuff. And the Hobbit book was written as a very much like you read it to your five-year-old kid book. Whereas Lord of the Rings is not that. And um, so I kind of propose that it's probably because they turned the dial up even further on the schlock factor where it's just like, I'm not interested anymore. At least that's kind of why I stopped watching it. So it wouldn't surprise me if that was kind of a similar reason for you guys. Yeah. Um, But on The Hobbit, I recently encountered this dude. I've been following his YouTube channel for a while, Chris Hartwell. He's like a – he teaches film, I don't know, maybe in L.A., He's a younger dude, and he recently in quarantine re-edited all three movies of the Hobbit movies. What? And put them up on Vimeo, like password protected. So you can like email him and he'll send you the password and you can download the movies. And I watched all three and it was quite good. I I really want to see that. I think, you know, Benny, in a year we could could touch these ones because they are so much better than the the theatrical cuts. And that would be an interesting thing. When Ben's psyche recovers in a yeah. year, yes. If and when your uh, your fantasy uh, meter replenishes, we can <laughs> potentially touch on them. But um, I was very surprised at how how good they were after this dude got a hold of them and literally went in and color graded the saturation down and like cut out so much dumb shit. And I really quite enjoyed them. So wow. You know, as a quick side note, I'm amazed at how many times the word cheese dick has come up in this episode of the show. We've never used it before. Chad, thank you. Continue. You're welcome. That's it. I think, you know, my two points, The Hobbit was way, way too cheese dick. 
and this guy cutting all that shit out of it made it a lot more enjoyable. You know, I think kind of further shows that some of the points that I struggled with in the Lord of the Rings movies were the cheesiness or the over-dramatization stuff. So it's a worthy cul-de-sac because they all kind of suffer from a similar problem. Wow. What, uh, you know, I got to say as a as a little side note about the Rankin-Bass Hobbit and Return of the King, the Gollum and the voice in those two are still my favorite Gollum, hands down. And the Bakshi one was good. And I love Andy Serkis as an actor, but uh, I really love the original Gollum. He was so scary. I remember seeing that as a kid, and it was just freaky. I think I've definitely seen The the Hobbit. I don't know if I've ever seen the animated Lord of the Rings. Return of the King? Oh, oh, Lord of the Rings, yeah. it's uh, He did a really interesting combination of live action and animation. It's, it's really interesting how he did it. Yeah, it was a lot of rotoscoping. Rotoscoping, yeah, there you go. It was cool, man. It was really good. I have a copy of that, and I got a copy of the uh, the Hobbit. Anyway, um, well, how about we how about we um say a few things that we liked? Because I got a few notes here that are somewhat plot related and somewhat not plot related. And rather than shard all over this thing, I think that there are some some redeeming factors for sure. That sounds good, man. Lead it off. Um, a couple of notes that came to mind were the Mines of Moria and the Awakening of the Balrog was just like so fucking legit. Even if the visuals themselves, like, however you feel about it, like, at the time they were awesome. But just, like, that story element is just such a great, you know, it's just such a great story element. I really enjoyed it. I thought visually it was, like, just an incredible representation of what always was described as this insane, vast, underground palatial kind of world, you know what they mean? Where they essentially just hollowed out the inside of a mountain and it was like, this is our castle, you know? Like, I, I just, I would say the Moria part is easily one of the best in all of the films. It's certainly the best part of the first film. And the and the Balrog as well, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's always been one of my favorite parts of the stories. And uh, even, uh, you know, with what little uh, fantasy... RPG video gaming I've done my favorite things in those games are usually when you go into a delve or a dungeon or some you know subterranean palatial you know sprawling area with monsters and you know traps and things like that like I, I prefer that to running around out in the open world for whatever reason so it's just part of the story that I've always I've always enjoyed especially when you end up with a final gigantic boss at the end which they kind of touched on here too yeah. yeah it's very i mean you see where they got the idea you know yeah yeah definitely well yeah and then also just the you know there's a lot of parts in moria in the films where uh, i remember the the lines for instance were just exactly like the book you know so you knew you know it's it was a very true representation of that part of the story and i i just really enjoyed it it just had a super great creep creep factor giant monster factor and then like all those goblins coming in at the end was just like what you know just really really well done easily easily one of my favorite parts of the first film yeah the like tiptoeing around and then mary or pippin or whoever knocks the skeleton down the tunnel and then it all comes to life is just like a holy shit thing for sure 
Yeah. And then just the the way, like how they were trying to be so quiet in this like utter echo chamber of a place, and like just knocking even the smallest rock just made so much goddamn noise. Like it was so anxiety inducing. You know, yeah, yeah. really, really cool. It did a great job. So that was just a nugget that I that I really enjoyed for sure. Absolutely, a piece of the story, I should say. Yes, thank you. Nuggets or something different. Yeah, and it quite quite possibly. Garfield the Great's uh, biggest moment. His his glory moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'll link to a hilarious uh, Neil Cicerienga YouTube video in the show notes that's all taking the piss out of the names. It's fucking hilarious and well worth five minutes of your time. I was watching, I think it was uh, uh, the Graham Norton show. Oh, yeah. Um, or, you know, just like a, a YouTube, you know, clip of the Graham Norton show. And, uh, they showed a clip of, of Ian McKellen. Like he, he was at a school for some reason, like giving a talk or whatever. And some, like more kids noticed that he was there. So outside of the window, he, I, I don't remember exactly what he said, but I'll paraphrase. And he said something like, you know, you know, he's like, uh, you know, you know what will happen if you don't study for your midterms. <laughs> You shall not pass. <laughs> oh yes, that's amazing. <laughs> Love that. Uh, so that good. is excellent, man. He seems like an awesome dude, McClellan, man. Him and Patrick Stewart, man. Yeah, they seem like legit dudes. And as like a unit, like they're really good friends, and they just seem like yeah, great fun people. Yeah, this would be a good moment to chuck in that um, Sean Connery was offered the role of Gandalf. Ooh. I I was going to go on a little tear about who was considered for this film, which is a lot of people. But, yeah. That That's was, pretty rough. That one of them. <laughs> like, that would have been such a bad call. Oh, my God. He would. He just doesn't – he wouldn't have gotten it. You know, what the hell is this picture about anyway? <laughs> How, what, the hell is a, what the hell is a hobbit? You guys – Um, do you guys have any – positives that you want to check out you kind of did already kev with you think the whole thing's pretty good but um i think moria like that was a great i'm glad you brought that up i'm i'm kind of uh piggybacking on your moment there i really enjoyed that a lot yeah it's hard to top that one man really really but is just in general the i think the i enjoyed the action in these movies sure helms deep and stuff yeah, yeah, the battles were interesting and, and cool, and you know, there's a lot of great choreography. And I really enjoyed, um, of course, Carl Urban, of course, but I also enjoyed the way Legolas was portrayed, and just the level of strength and agility and speed that elves had. I thought that they really did a good job portraying that visually in the film, and I, I always enjoyed it. You know, like. Uh, he could just fire off like 10 arrows in one second. And, you know, he was just super agile. And it was exactly the way I imagined elves being based on the way they're described in the stories, you know? So I, I really think they did a good job with that. And I, I thought Orlando Bloom was great as an elf, as Legolas. And, you know, he came comes back for the Hobbit movies with Evangeline Lilly. Rare. Yeah. Talk about a break for him, man. Two days before he graduates acting school, he gets that re- the Legolas role. It's pretty legit. Right. Is that what it was? Two days before he graduated acting school? Yeah. Wow. Lucky break. Seriously, man. Damn. Yeah, I forget which which battle it is, but there's one where he's just like he's firing off arrow after arrow and like uh, an orc closes in and he fucking just 
as he's drawing the next arrow, he stabs it in the eye with an arrow and then continues shooting. Like, yeah, there's some definitely excellent combat, Ben. You're right. Yeah, there's some cool, clever shit that that goes on. Yeah, for sure. And it's fun to what they're you know swashbuckling high adventure. You know, it's, yeah, it's, definitely. It's fun to watch, and even the giant battles with the CGI and the you know, it, it, it looked pretty good. You know, like. You forget you forget that there's like really only a few actors on screen, you know. Yeah, it's not glaring, you know, that it's all CGI'd out. No, I thought that the battles were excellent, man. Yeah, there's a good little uh, cul-de-sac there where they created a crowd simulation software called Massive, which was kind of cool. Where they would mocap extras in armor doing various moves and then they would they'd populate the the digital environment with the soldiers and then put a randomizer on it and so like all of them had their own little moves and movements and walking styles and it made it look super realistic so i just thought it was quite cool that they created their own goddamn software that then the industry picked up on so i would argue that that should be in the nuggets section it's so damn cool yeah but yes good one that was just well connected to what we were talking about. But um, in terms of a couple of things that I would like to throw out just as things that I appreciated is not necessarily movie related, but the Lord of the Rings story as a whole, I really enjoy that the hero is an Aragorn. It really like pushes, you know, the halfling Frodo as the hero on the hero's journey and kind of Aragorn as the like big tough guy who becomes the king is like a side story, which is super uncommon. And I appreciated that a lot. Yes. I like that too. Very much like uh big trouble in little China. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> in, totally. Well, no, I mean in the sense that like Jack Burton is like, he's, he's in everybody's face, but he's not the main character. Like Wang is the main protagonist. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great, it's a great comparison. Right. It's, yeah. It's, well, it's at least in terms of like how the movie was built, you know, I mean, it's not as though Dennis Dunn was, you know, cast as the, the main actor and, or, you know, uh, sold as the main actor in Big Trouble in Little China. You know, you look at the movie poster and like, you know, it's basically a giant thing of, of Kurt Russell. So, but in, in a similar way, he's not. Kurt Russell is not the main character, or he's not the hero of the story. But they pushed uh, Vigo as the main heartthrob, so same, same, yeah. Sure. And heartthrob he was. He's a stud. Hubba, hubba. If, you, if you're willing to, to hear me out for a moment, I've got a couple of gripes, even though I know we did a lot of griping earlier. Mm. Um, back to the gripes. Back to the gripes. <laughs> <laughs> the obsession with battles, I while I agree generally I like the action, it gets a little long in the tooth after a while, but I feel like overall it's pretty good. I imagine there's not a hell of a lot of commenting on that particular thing, but the two key issues I've got with Jackson's Lord of the Rings is number one, Jackson doesn't like magic, which is kind of like a huge fucking component of the universe and has said multiple times that he just doesn't like it and doesn't want it in his stories. And so that's a huge hole for me. I don't like magic either. I don't not like it. I've, I don't know. It's again, I think it's just fatigue. You know what I mean? Over the years, it's like Lord of the Rings, D&D, those damn games, all those stupid movies. I don't know. I, I just like sci-fi better, I think. But I, I don't like, I still think it's cool. I really like the way it was portrayed in Doctor Strange, for instance. And also in Thor, how it's kind of like magic and technology are the same thing, you know, or, or they're 
somewhat one and the same or, or kind of combined. Like I dig, I dig new takes on it other than like, you know, here's my magic staff. I'm going to shove it up your ass. <laughs> no, I think, I think the Dr. Strange and, and Thor, those are, those are good examples of, of a cool way to sort of blend magic and technology. That being said, I, I don't like, I don't care for magic, but I think it's unwise to downplay magic in a story that, you know, magic plays such a huge part of it. It's yeah. It, it, you know, just, I, I can't imagine doing that. That just seems silly. That's a much better way of describing the point I was driving at for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, okay. It's a science fiction film. Picture this star Wars with no spaceships. It's like, yeah, no. <laughs> and no science. Um, <laughs> no, no science. There's a great Rick and Morty episode where Morty wants, uh, <laughs> Morty's reward for, for, uh, you know, going with Rick on his adventures is to actually get a real dragon. And the whole time, like <laughs> Rick is just not having it. Like he just hates magic and he just keeps, you know, like uh, you have to, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll put the episode in the show notes or whatever, but it is absolutely perfect as far as how I feel about it. Like I am totally Rick in that episode. So your, your response to my uh, gripe about magic is watch episode X of Rick and Morty and that'll explain everything. I love it. That, yeah, it, it does so well. <laughs> yeah, it more accurately encapsulates Ben's feelings. It really does. Um, Jarhigo, for the folks at home and certainly for myself, do you remember which season that episode was in? It's in season four. Um, let me look it up really quick. Fourth season. Fourth episode of the fourth season, Claw and Hoarder. Synopsis, Rick reluctantly gives in to Morty's wishes to get a pet dragon. Yep, there you go. Yeah, it's Claw and Hoarder special victims unit. <laughs> special uh, victims I unit. I love that. <laughs> I fucking love that your response to my my point is uh, is a Rick and Morty episode. That's fantastic. It it's it's fucking hilarious. It's just it's so good. Well, this I think uh, this is a perfect compendium to Lord of the Rings because it it touches on all that stuff. It it really touches on my feelings about about uh, fantasy to begin with. So I'll check it out. I haven't seen that one. Um, my final gripe is potentially. A very good gripe, and potentially you won't give two flying shits about it. So I'm just going to throw it out there. Um, my biggest gripe with the Lord of the Rings movies is that the books take place over like a seven year journey, and the movies make it look like they just like took a weekend stroll down to a fucking volcano. So the length of time the journey takes was that was a key thing that was lost. Hmm. Definitely. Wow, I had not thought about that, and I agree. I think you're right. It I does, agree, it, but yeah. How would you I mean, you know, there would have just been a lot of like time jumps in the movie. Like, yeah. Which you love. You love a good time jump. We love Benny loves that. Well, yeah. The, the, to, to, to illustrate it, you would have, you know, like 17 years later, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and everybody looks the same and it doesn't matter. Like it, it just, you know, I get why they did it the way they did it. But yeah. I, I also I, I feel the same way, but I get why Peter Jackson did it the way he did it. Yeah. I probably would have also made the same decision, but I think the power of my first read through realizing that it was like a decade was like, holy shit, that's intense, man. And it was lost. But I, I think you're right. I think I would have made the same decision that Jackson did. Yeah. Yeah. He in general did a lot of playing around with timing, I think, to, yeah. to keep to keep things aligned and, and moving in a, in a certain way. It definitely it doesn't feel like a weekend. It feels like a bunch of time, but not seven years. Yeah. 
All right, shall we move on to Nuggets, Deaths, and Ratings, dudes? Yes, let's do that. Chad, you want to kick off Nuggets? Yes, I've got about 47 Nuggets. Oh, come on, really? <laughs> no, not really. I've got a few. Um, do you have a Bruno Nugget, Kev? I don't have a Bruno Nugget, no. All right. Bruce Willis, a fan of the book, expressed interest in the role of Boromir, but was declined. I I, I could see him actually being really good as Boromir. You never know. You know, some of his better stuff, like like if you ever saw The Siege with Denzel and um, Annette Benning, Tony Shalhoub, where he plays the general that declares martial law in New York City, watch that. You could see him being Boromir. Totally. Um, this is a weird one, but I kind of like it where, you know, when uh, Bilbo kind of screams and has turns into a bit of a devil face towards Frodo in the ring. Oh my god, that freaked me out. Yes. Yeah. So, I guess the effect they actually use like a rubber puppet of Ian Holm's face and Ian Holm loved the silly horror puppet so much that the design team cast an iron version of it for his mantelpiece and gave it to him. So I just love the idea of it sitting on his mantelpiece at home. Ah, that's very cool. Um, two more nuggets. Vin Diesel auditioned for the role of Aragorn. Get out of here. Yep. Really? Yep. God, I love that guy. Friend of the show, Vin Diesel. And then there's a mega nugget, which is facts and numbers about the trilogy. Six million feet of film were shot. 48,000 swords, axes, shields, and makeup prosthetics. 20,600 background actors cast. 19,000 costumes. You get the point. It's fucking bananas, this production. Wow. Them's my nuggets. Those are good. Um, Mine are mostly cast-related. Everybody calves. Lucy Lawless and Nicole Kidman for Galadriel. Really? Yeah, can't imagine either one of those. Max von Sydow is Gandalf. I could kind of see that. That, Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Uh, Super Strange, Morgan Freeman considered for Gandalf. Interesting. Yes, very interesting. I could see that too. Yeah, I could. Uh, What else do we got here? Oh, Saruman, Paul Schofield, Jeremy Irons, Malcolm McDowell, or Tim Curry. I could see any one of the last three. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Yeah. Sam Neill is Theoden. I could see that. Yep. You clever girl. Anthony Hopkins was considered for Bilbo. Ian Holmes part. Okay. Yeah. Uh, super interesting. Stuart Townsend for Aragorn. He, you might remember him as Dorian Gray from League of, League of, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I can't speak also. Yeah, right. He was deemed too young. Uh, another Sean Connery movie. Uh, another Sean Connery epic. Try the shoop. Uh, Russell Crowe confirmed audition for Boromir. Huh. Yeah, that would have been cool. Uh, okay, so on to, those are just sort of some minor nuglets. <laughs> Dingleberries. This is a little bit better. Yes, <laughs> I like nuglets, actually. Yeah. Um, nuglets, dingleberries, whichever, or nuggleberries. <laughs> <laughs> it's official, folks. It's official. We're stupid. Um, John Rice davies played Gimli, as we well know. I love him. Great actor. Didn't he play uh, Gummo the Dilf or Gumball Son of Groin? Yeah, he's a Smurf. He played a Smurf, right? That's he right. He played a Smurf, yeah. <laughs> but he also played uh, Mr. Tree. Oh, yes. I did not know that he was the voice of Mr. Tree. 
uh, which is Treebeard, of course. In in regular English, Treebeard. <laughs> in non-pistic video character names. Well, I was going to say Nerdlish. In Nerdlish, it's Mr. Tree. Mr. Tree, yeah. And what was the name of Fangorn, the fo- Fangorn Forest? I forget. Fun Golf Forest. Fun Golf Forest. <laughs> Fun Golf. I really like that a lot because I just immediately uh, pictured it as a miniature golf course no, or totally. having a miniature golf course in it. Yeah. Like Gandalf rolls up and he's like – and it's it's not like, oh my god, what's this great white light? He, they're like, yo, hang on a second. I got to finish this part. Yeah. It's, Kurt, it's Kurt Russell from Overboard like carpentering some fucking windmill holes in the middle of the forest. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, man. Exactly. I love it. <laughs> totally. Um, I think I had another one and I've since forgotten it. Good story. Mm, but my my last one – I know, great, right? My my last one is I still to this day because I, I found it again. I have in my possession a near mint copy of the 45 on vinyl with the storybook that goes with it of the Rankin-Bass Hobbit. Fuck yeah. And it, I am going to take a picture of it because I know where it is downstairs and I will take a picture of it and we can post it up because that is – Nice. A highly prized piece of lore between me and my brother. And we both found it a couple of years ago, and there was almost a heated battle as to who is going to be the keeper of <laughs> that particular item of nerdery. <laughs> and I ended up with it, and I was really stoked about that. So at any rate, I have a collection of 45s with various different you know, kids things on them, some, you know, contemporary songs from when I was a little bit older. But that one in particular is super cool. And it still works and it's in great shape. That's awesome. And that's about it, man. I believe I was the only person that died this week. Yes, you were. I'm disappointed in Ben and myself. Bringing up Star Wars, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I think I'm actually one of the dead bodies in the dead marshes that's, yeah. you know, just pulling you guys down with me. Now, you died watching is... this again, Ben, so there was nothing left to die in the, in the it, show. It's true. It's like, I can't pull, any, can't pull over any further. It's <laughs> already pulled over. <laughs> Why don't you put her in charge? <laughs> Sorry. Good times. Ratings. Oh, man. I, I'm going to just keep it short and sweet. I, I rate these films an eight. Solid eight. There's a couple things that definitely don't hold up over time. I think the music... We got beaten over the head with it, but they're great. I mean, they're they they kicked off, uh, and this is something we really didn't touch on, but they kicked off a new sort of wave of mega franchise filmmaking that I absolutely hate. But these movies were not intended to be that. This was like let's make these and make them good, and I think they did a great job with them. And that's it. Sweet, Benny. I don't really know we're going to be rating these because it wasn't really a proper. You know the, the the cold discussion, et cetera. So I, I again have no uh, preparedness. I have not fired up the improbability drive at all. I did but, not expect uh, you to. I'm going to give it a seven point five. Um, what's great about them is great. Um, what's not great about them isn't so bad that it completely drags them down. Um, I think they're absolutely worth watching. Just not for me ever again, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well said, Jahiko. As usual, I generally agree, but my numbers are way lower. I'm, I'm very, I feel very similar. I think um, watching this uh, YouTube guy recut The Hobbit, I really want him to do Lord of the Rings because I think it'll make it better. But um, 
this movie doesn't the trilogy in my view now with hindsight doesn't make it into good movie territory but it's close it's in borderline so i kind of like that it ended up where it ended up which is between meet the feebles and avatar which i don't know if you've ever seen meet the feebles another peter jackson movie but it is the most twisted fucking muppets movie ever wow have you ever seen that one no but it sounds like something i might need to watch i don't think i ever actually watched it i remember you were you i think you and strange were talking about that like endlessly at one point yeah yeah is that, am I right about that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so Meet the Feebles is a is a Muppets puppet movie, but it's like a Muppet show variety show. But they're all like dealing drugs and prostituting Muppets in the basement, shooting S and M films and S yeah S and M porn, and it's like so fucking ridiculous. But it's nice. It's it's worth a watch for sure. If you've never heard of it and you like really weird twisted stuff, check it out. And I kind of like rating it as a better Lord, a better Peter Jackson movie than his, you know, billion dollar franchise. Um, <laughs> but it comes in at a four point seven, and it beats Avatar, which uh, coincidentally the Gollum motion cap sequences uh, are what James Cameron saw to realize that his twenty year in development Avatar was finally ready in terms of the tech being there. So that's kind of an interesting little side nugget word um and then you know as far as my feeling of the film there's like a term in tech that's like taking a moonshot and they talk about like if you shoot for the moon and miss you still get really fucking high or really get really way higher than you would if you aimed lower and i feel like this movie is a moonshot that didn't hit its mark but it pushed the industry way further than it would have otherwise so you got to give it some props for that so more like a giant leap for mankind rather than yeah. a small step for man. Exactly, yeah. Mr. Armstrong. Word. Okay. I, was, I, I really I liked doing that. Chad, what are we talking about next week, dude? Dude. Next week we're talking about Umbrella Academy Season 2, which dropped a couple days ago. Ooh. Oh, it's already out? Oh, man, I'm excited to see that. Okay. So we're going to binge the shite out of it and talk about it. Mm. I've already watched like half of it. So Nice. So we hope you folks enjoyed this sort of cold watch episode, trying to do some different stuff. Obviously, we did pizza last week. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Please tell us if you hate it. Really helps us out a lot. Also, uh, Umbrella Academy Season 2 next week. Hyperion. Hyperion's coming up. When is that coming up, Chad? Three weeks? 27th. It'll be released on August 27th. So please check out the audiobook. All right. We're gonna. That's going to be the first of our sort of book club series so don't forget to read that or check out the audiobook if you haven't already you can follow us on instagram at ebd podcast you can find us on most social media at ebd podcast you can send us requests contact at ebd.fm that's our email also ask ebd that hashtag on twitter Chad is a Chad normal on twitter and is a jarhigo on twitter and i am Wolverine on twitter you can find the show notes for this episode, folks, in your podcast app of choice. Just like cookie opus. Or at our website, ebd.fm forward slash episodes forward slash 67. Also, if you'd like to support the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever. I can't tell you how helpful the reviews are for the show, and we need more of them. We know that there is a bunch of you that are listening that love the show. So if you really like it, please help us out. Give us a review on iTunes. 
or Stitcher or Spotify or whatever. We would really, really appreciate it. And thank you so much for tuning in. It means the world to the three of us because we love doing this every week. And that's about it. Stay tuned for Umbrella Academy Season 2 next week, and we will see you on another time. Thank you.